0: Welcome to you today i'm paul pepis director of the oregon humanities center my guest today is curtis austin associate professor of history at the university of oregon he joined the faculty in fall 2017 after six years at the ohio state university prior to his arrival at ohio he was an associate professor of history and the founding director of the center for black studies at the university of southern mississippi austin's research interests include african-american history civil rights movement history the history of the black power movement and U.S. social and political history. Austin's book, Up Against the Wall, Violence in the Making and Unmaking of the Black Panther Party, chronicles the history of the Black Panther Party and was selected by the Choice Library Journal for its outstanding academic title award. Thank you, Curtis, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And welcome to the University of Oregon. Thank you, happy to be here. So on that, why don't we just start there. What attracted you to the University of Oregon? What drew you here from The Ohio State University?
1: well there was a very uh, intriguing job ad that went out uh, sent out by the university uh, calling for a cluster hire in black studies and I had been in the field of black studies for many years at that point as you mentioned uh, in the brief introduction there I actually started a black studies program at a school where I worked at um, in the past and I love building institutions so when I saw that ad I thought why not go for it? Had no idea that we would make it through uh, to the end, but um, got the call and was happy to take it.
0: Good, great. Well, we, we wish you luck building Black Studies at the University of Oregon. It's definitely th- something that we need to build. I'm looking forward to it. So your book focuses on the Black Panther Party. So first, give us like, this you know, the, the thumbnail sketch. Who are the Black Panthers? What is the Black Panther Party?
1: The Black Panther Party is an organization that was formed in 1966 uh, in Oakland, California, started by two young men, college students in fact, Huey Newton and, and Bobby Seale. And essentially, they were trying to address the issue of police brutality uh, and, in many cases, police murder in the black community. So, just as an example, in the 10 months before the start of the Black Panther Party there, in, in October of 66, mm-hmm. there were seven. Um, murders of of black people in the bay area uh, police officers killing black people all of these killings were deemed justifiable homicides Mm -hmm. so of course it's 1966 people are seeing the news on the tv that's coming out of birmingham and other parts of the south we have the civil rights act we have the voting rights act but there's no discernible change in the black community even though all of this activity is taking place and all these laws have been passed so the black panther Party comes and says, we're going to address the issues on the ground. So in addition to wanting to stand up against police brutality and police violence, they wanted to address issues like employment Mm -hmm. in the community, like um, the inadequate housing in the community, the poor education that the majority of blacks, not just in the Bay Area, but throughout the country, were were receiving in their local schools. So it really was a community self-help organization that started by Two guys that really caught on fire and eventually wound up in about 40 different cities throughout the United States and uh, England and uh, France and Brazil Several Caribbean islands and a couple of places in Africa. So Tell us
0: a little bit about the relationship of the Black Panther Party to the wider Black Power movement I'm not talking specifically about the civil rights movement But specifically the Black Power movement because I think of the Black Power uh, organizations the black panther party was the one that has that's the one that captured uh, Attention and the, the press and obviously the state Where does it fit with the other black power movements? I think, I think
1: that's an excellent question black power is primarily concerned with the celebration of um, black culture uh, pride in ones blackness uh, and self-determination mm-hmm. and the black power advocates thought that they could achieve goals in these areas by emphasizing uh, their history um, their artistic production uh, their music and and so on and so forth and the black panther party encapsulates all of these things so from the self-determination piece of course blacks were interested uh, black panthers were interested in defending the black community uh, just in general but they had a very interesting news organ called the black panther party Newspaper and mm-hmm. they have a, a now famous artist uh, in the name of um, Emory Douglas who Painted um, I Would say drew all of these really interesting cartoons that just really got to the bottom of the black experience in America and so very um, very deeply grounded in the artistic mm-hmm. piece as was the black power movement in, in general um they were also interested in advancing the role of women in the black community and there have been justifiable critiques of the black panther party in terms of its uh, machoism uh, the misogyny mm-hmm. that was there and the sexism that was there but as an organization the black panther party is one of the few black power organizations that elevated women to leadership positions and that fought with itself to move beyond the really um, a terribly constraining mindset that most black people came into the party with. And so they did advance uh, gender relations mm-hmm. in, in such a way that many people in the Black uh, Panther Party, many women in the Black Panther Party, went on to become founders of uh, various uh, women's organizations that um, have made. Uh, Gender issues commonplace today when they weren't so much back in the 1960s
0: my sense is that there there has been a kind of uh, view of the black panther party as a kind of Seriously a misogynistic organization and part of your argument is that that's actually historically inaccurate that, that, that the role of women was much more significant than these sort of gendered critiques of Acknowledge? Is that
1: right? I, I would say it's much more significant. I, I would also say that there were sexist in the mm-hmm. party. Mm-hmm. I would also say there was uh, quite a bit of misogyny mm-hmm. in the party. Mm-hmm. So there were uh, political education classes where men were brought to and said, this is wrong. This is why. <laughs> this is how we fix it. So for example, if you uh, were guilty of some uh, party rule or the type of infraction and you were a male, you would be sent to the baby clinic and for two months you would have to deal Mm -hmm. with what you thought was a woman's Woman's job and so on and so forth and and people were disciplined in ways that made them understand that you can't continue on this and expect to reach the goal a goal of freedom Mm -hmm. so like I said they were justifiably critiqued for that but the struggle against this misogyny against this sexism I think is much more widespread than say it was in SNCC Uh, and and we're talking Black Panther Party, or even the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think they should get some credit for the effort. They obviously did not succeed in change the world Mm -hmm. in that way, but they certainly tried.
0: So you you, you brought up SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So tell us a little bit about the relationship of the Black Panther Party to these um, civil rights organizations that were explicitly nonviolent. What kind of relations were there
1: between them? Well, uh, when we talk about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and SNCC, there would be no Black Panther Party Mm -hmm. without SNCC. Mm -hmm. Uh, People like uh, Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks down in Alabama and Mississippi who were leading these organizations um, had connections, uh, relatives, people in New York, California, Chicago, other parts of the country, uh, where they would write letters or go on visits and share with them what they were doing down in Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, and it's the people that they shared these ideas with, including Huey Newton and Bobby Seal, mm-hmm. were the ones who started the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. Now, in Huey, uh, Huey and Bobby's case specifically, Huey actually had a cousin who went down to Lowndes County, Alabama, mm-hmm. where SNCC was doing some work, and he brought back some SNCC pamphlets. Mm-hmm. Huey Newton seized this pamphlet He and Bobby Seale have been talking about creating an organization for several months. At this point, they see this pamphlet and they say, that's us. We're now the Black Panther Party. So they literally stole the name Hmm. and the emblem. The the emblem on this pamphlet was a panther and they took that without asking anybody. There's a story that goes that they call the SNCC office and ask them if they could have permission to use it. That didn't happen. Uh, They actually (laughs) decided that's who they were, that's what they were gonna be, and the rest is history. Uh So a very close connection with uh, an organization like SNCC. But when you think about the NAACP, You think about the Congress of racial equality Mm -hmm. Uh, and you mentioned in your question that these were very explicitly nonviolent organizations and I would say to you they were explicitly nonviolent on paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very difficult to survive in a place like Birmingham, Mm -hmm. uh, Alabama or Jackson, Mississippi with. Um, an emphasis on nonviolence. So, what I had a woman in the NAACP tell me in an interview once is that nonviolence works fine in the daytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when the cameras leave and the reporters go home, you have to insist on defending yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did in the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did in court. And so, there is not that big of a difference. Uh, between these organizations and the panthers the biggest difference is that the panthers said it publicly and open openly and you would find out the hard way from someone in core or the naacp robert williams in north carolina for example
0: so let's talk a little bit about this this first of all the aesthetics of the black panther party guns black leather jackets berets Um, why are those aesthetics important to them that is why did they value those aesthetics and how were those aesthetics Perceived and I'm first I want to talk about the the appearance of african-americans with weapons walking the streets and in these uniforms um, and then let's talk about the making of Violence in the making and the unmaking but first let's talk about the aesthetics What why were those aesthetics important for the Panthers? Why did they want those aesthetics? To well, be
1: I really like that question and uh, I'm hoping that um our younger viewers are, are able to, to get something out of this because I would like for, for them to think about the fact that um, not just on college campuses, but especially college campuses, everywhere you go, you see people in stretch pants, <laughs> right? Everywhere you go. So the Black Panther Party chose the black leather jacket because during that period, everybody had a black leather jacket and they wanted to be an organization that attracted the people. Yeah. And they looked around and saw that the people had leather jackets and so that became a crucial part of their uniform Uh, the guns and the berets something a little bit different they uh, are actually very much uh, enthused about what's going on in places like Cuba they're very enthused about what's happening in the streets of Paris where the students are rising up Uh, and so the beret was kind of paying homage to what was going on in, in some of these other countries but the guns The guns were extremely important, especially for California because there was a local law that said anybody over the age of 16 could carry around her or his gun as long as they were not pointing at it. And if you looked around San Francisco and Oakland and San Jose and Richmond. That's what you would see in 1960s California, Bay Area, California. People walking around with their pistols and their guns. And again, they wanted to attract folks who they thought of as the people. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, for, for us, it's a big deal. But for people mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, it was kind of that Western thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they were trying not to be too high-brow, and that's why they chose um, this look.
0: Mm-hmm. So how, how was this look received, not by the people, but by say the press and the state
1: well the pre- neither the press nor the state uh, appreciated it so much now th- the state certainly didn't appreciate it. the press liked writing about it. Mm-hmm. The press loved to take uh, lots of photos and splash it across the front page and it got syndicated in lots of places from California all the way to the Atlantic Ocean and around the world uh, for that matter. But the state thought that this was a huge problem and they definitely needed to do something about it and almost immediately uh, there was a new FBI office set up in San Francisco to watch the every move of the Black Panther Party so from 1967 after the Panthers were about six months old all the way until they closed the doors in 1982 there was a special FBI office there in San Francisco that coordinated with, with the state and local authorities but they were concerned about this look. They were concerned about this rhetoric, of course, the off the pig, and if you shoot us, we're going to shoot back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say, uh, as for those who don't have time to, to read the book, um, about 90% of Black Panther Party members never picked up a gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of this, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it bluster because we can look at the newspapers and find some things that that are obviously not bluster Mm -hmm. but the average member of the Black Panther Party uh, served breakfasts so the newspaper worked in the free health clinics went around to schools where there might have been problems worked on uh, tenant issues housing issues it took a special kind of person to actually use Mm -hmm. the gun Mm -hmm. now maybe a few more carried it but very few actually used them
0: so um, you mentioned the FBI's issue Uh, I, you, I think you, you, you didn't uh, express the extent to which J. Edgar Hoover was hostile to the Panther Party. He was, for him, this was a major problem, yes?
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, in 1968, he called the organization the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. I think that's a little bit overblown, uh, but he was convinced, or, or at least the documents say, that he was convinced that this organization could potentially cause us some major issues. And I would submit that the thing that he was more afraid of was not members of the Black Panther Party per se, but what the Black Panther Party represented. Mm -hmm. Because what I tried to point out in my book is that the Black Panther Party would not exist without white people. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't think about that, but the majority of the money uh, that went to produce the paper, mm-hmm. uh, to buy guns, uh, to get all the things you needed to run a breakfast program or a free health clinic, comes from white students, people in the white community, and by extension, we're talking about the Asian community, we're talking about the Latino community. And so they had this thing about themselves that made other people interested in what they were doing, and then they'd go into their own communities and duplicate it. Mm-hmm. So I think the threat was this infectiousness of their ideas and not so much that oh, this these Few thousand people are going to th- overthrow the government. I see
0: so to say a little bit more about their ideas So they have they have this detailed ten-point program So what are the some of the key points in the ten-point program these the, the really powerful ideas that the Black Panthers Advocated for and that were spreadable
1: You know I would the, the number one point of course is self-determination uh, this idea that black people buy 1966 uh, or if you take the end of the Civil War in 1866 mm-hmm. had been struggling since you know for a century to, to be free and essentially not much had changed and so they wanted to make a stand and say we're no longer asking nicely and mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be self-determined whether you like it or not you know there's there's a debate about a debate about whether you know they made uh, much Uh, Progress on that but other ideas like uh, we want decent housing you know Housing fit for human beings to live in Mm -hmm. and most places throughout the United States the majority of the black community lived in segregated areas and Dilapidated housing no matter what your job was Mm -hmm. in fact, obviously there was a tiny middle class But even if you were a doctor you still a black doctor You still had to live on the other side of the tracks in this small Segregated space, mm-hmm. uh, so so decent housing. Uh, they wanted uh, an education that told them exactly who they were, talked about their history in ways that were accurate. Um, whereas uh, I'm from Mississippi, for example, there in, in the textbooks that I had growing up, there was a paragraph of, when it came to black people, a paragraph about slavery, and that's it entire American history so that was in the 1970s I can imagine what it must have been like for them growing up in the 40s and the 50s Mm -hmm. uh, and 60s too so decent education they wanted the criminal justice system to be more fair they wanted to be tried by juries of their peers when they found themselves in trouble with the law when they found themselves in front of a judge what they also found was that almost always you would have a jury that was all white and an all-white jury would almost always convict them, uh, black people, based on their misunderstanding of who they were. So they demanded a jury of their peers, which of course is a constitutional mm-hmm. right. And, and most uh, black people at the time were not receiving that particular constitutional right. There were 10 other um, other. There were 10 points in all, but one of the ones that people have a little bit of a problem with was they wanted to be exempt from the military, for example, they didn't want to fight specifically in Vietnam, but they demanded their right to be exempt because they were saying that they didn't want to protect a country that did not protect them. They didn't want to go fight for a democracy in some place where they didn't have democracy in Oakland or in New York or in Jackson. So I would think those would be some of the the most important, but the ones that the press focused on mm-hmm. was point number seven. Right. And that is we demand an end to the police brutality and murder of black people. And what they did with these points is they, here's the demand and here's what we believe. So it's what, what we wanted, what we believe. And they wanted the end of violence against black people. And what they believed was, according to their uh, 10 point program, was that they could set up self-defense groups and communities all over the country and defend the community from uh, outside violence, from this external violence. That's what the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC and CBS uh, focused on that one particular point and not the other ones that I would think are much more important. So um, what we know about the Black Panther Party is um, Mostly untrue if we read newspapers. I found a document in my research once, uh, an FBI document that said 73% of everything published about the Black Panther Party in American newspapers was given to these papers by the FBI Hmm. or reporters who worked for the FBI.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. The the clandestine efforts of the FBI to undermine the Black Panther Party so talk a little bit about that. Um, I mean, you, you've already begun to suggest it, but they, they had FBI informants who became members of the Black Panther Party. Is that right?
1: That is that is correct. Uh, one of um, the things that I critique um, the party about in my book is that all you had to do was be black to join the Black Panther. That, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Now there were some chapters. I mean, the chapters all over the country. There were some chapters where there was a little bit more scrutiny. People would check you out. But for the most part the overwhelming majority of chapters in the parties if you you know could sell a newspaper if you could serve breakfast to children you were in now certainly you had to read certain books and you had to do all kinds of exercises and 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 at one point in the party's history you had to learn how to uh, fix weapons uh, and, and shoot weapons but that after 1967 that was no longer the case after Sacramento incident Um, so because of that it was very easy for the FBI to send people in, gather information and then manipulate the the organization into doing practically anything it wanted I think one of the more egregious examples of this would probably be in Chicago Mm -hmm. where the FBI infiltrated a a young man by the name of William O'Neill William O'Neill had um, violated his probation he had gone to jail and stolen a car after he got out of jail and you know the FBI came to him in jail and said you can either go back to jail and finish your sentence or you could accept uh, $300 a month from us and tell us what's going on with the Black Panther Party here in Chicago So he accepted that monthly stipend and went in and moved up in the ranks and became the chief of security And William O'Neill turned out to be the guy who drugged uh, the leader of the Chicago chapter Fred Hampton with seco on the night of uh, December 4th 1969 and after he was drugged the police um, local uh, state's attorney's office came in kicked the door open and shot the place up killing mark Clark who was a defense captain from Peoria Illinois and Fred Hampton who was the uh, leader of the Illinois State Chapter of the Black Panther Party now there are incidents like that that took place in New York it took place in San Diego Los Angeles, I live not in Oakland, where hmm. the, the headquarters uh, were, but that is the one that's probably the most egregious. So yeah. how, how did the press
0: report on that, on, on Fred Hampton's death? How, what, what was the story that was originally told?
1: The story that was originally told was that um, there was a warrant issued uh, for weapons in the home. The Panthers re- refused to accept the warrant and began to shoot at the police, hmm. and the police shot back in self-defense. There were some very good lawyers uh, from the University of Chicago, some from Northwestern University, who came in and offered to help the Black Panther Party um, in their time of need. And what they discovered was that the Panthers, even though there were guns in the apartment, got off one shot. And that shot came from Mark Clark, who was sitting at the door guarding it, because when the police opened um, fire on the apartment, they first knocked on the door. And when they knocked, Mark Clark said, who is it? And the police responded, Tommy. And he said, Tommy, who? And the police said, Tommy gun, and started shooting. And they shot Mark Clark straight through the heart, and the gun he was holding shot a hole in the ceiling. The other 101 shots all came from police firearms. So the story was the state's attorneys and the police's story that was told in the paper. But in 1982, after a long time. This happened in '69. A court found that the police actually uh, shot all the shots, and they awarded the Clark and Hampton families um, almost two million dollars in damages.
0: So, tell us some of the factors that led to the dissolution of the Black Panther Party.
1: You know, the Black Panther. The average age of uh, a Black Panther was 19. So, you know, I'm I'm going to be 50 soon. Yeah. And I can remember being 19 yes. thinking I knew everything. Now I know I was wrong about that, right? So so we have a group of young people who are trying to do something that will literally change the world, but they are essentially kids. I mean, I know, I have kids myself. I know a 19 year old does not want to be referred to as a kid, but when you live for as long as I have, you come to realize that uh, you have a little bit more growing to do so they made lots of mistakes they didn't really need the fbi to come in and infiltrate and screw things up for them they they made lots of mistakes on their own Um, it was important though for them as i was saying in the beginning to make sure that women had uh, leadership roles and because they did this you had a lot of guys in the party who didn't know how to handle that and so you had infighting where it didn't Need to take place where it was not really necessary and this ran a lot of good people away from the party So some of the best people left because of internal party politics had nothing to do with the police nothing to do with the FBI, but I would think ultimately the party dissolved because the FBI the CIA the Defense Intelligence Agency made it clear to all of their staff people that if we don't get rid of this organization the United States will no longer be uh, what we want it to be. They convinced their staff people uh, of that. And because of that, there was widespread killing of members of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Still to this day, there are dozens of members of the Black Panther Party in prison for crimes that we know uh, and that the government has allocuted that they did not commit, but they had these political ideas and so they remain uh, in prison. And there was a really, really big uh, media push to, I would say, criminalize and vilify the organization. So today that when a student or a person on the street, for that matter, hears the phrase Black Panther Party, they become standoffish. Well, it's because they created this idea of the Black Panthers of a very violent very murderous organization when in fact it is an organization that today is responsible for the sidewalks where people can go up on their um, wheelchairs. Uh, the Black Panther Party pushed for that. You've heard of Mills on Wheels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a Black Panther Party who started that um, idea. With, healthcare has been in the news for a, a long time. The Black Panther Party pushed free healthcare and they didn't just push it, they created free health clinics and made the government stand up and then give more in terms of Medicaid and Medicare. And so the guns is what we hear about for the most part and the social programs get shunted to the side. But I think that was the threat. There was a move not to take the United States where it promised to take us, you know, liberty and justice for all, but to keep it as it was to maintain the status quo, and the Black Panther Party was going to allow itself to be uh, ridden like an ox for the people uh, in order to prevent that from happening, and so they had to be gotten rid of.
0: On that note, I have to stop you. It's been a fascinating conversation, Curtis. Thank you for everything that you've shared with us. Good luck with your work. Um, I hope that your time here is extremely productive thanks for taking the time thanks for having me I've been speaking with Curtis Curtis Austin associate professor of history at the University of Oregon he's the author of the award-winning book up against the wall violence in the making and unmaking of the Black Panther Party thanks so much for watching